Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, with author, pastor and Bible teacher Mike Beaumont, who's talking to David Tavner. In this conversation, we're talking about two books of the Bible, Ezra and Nehemiah. Mike, why? Well, actually, both these books were originally one book in the original Hebrew text. And it's only when the Hebrew Bible was translated into Greek, the version we call the Septuagint, that the two were separated. And that became the tradition for most Western Bibles to follow ever thereafter. And they do sort of dovetail into one another in that they cover pretty much the same historical period as well. So it makes sense to look at them together. Okay, so remind us briefly who Ezra and Nehemiah are, what's happening, when this is happening, and then we'll dive into each book. Well, in previous episodes, we've seen the flow of history of God's people, of how once they had entered the Promised Land, through repeated disobedience to God, first the northern nation of Israel was exiled, scattered, dispersed, gone forever as it was conquered by the nation of Assyria in 722-721 BC. In the south, the southern nation of Judah, they felt they were okay because they had the temple, but the prophets that said, no, the same thing will happen to us unless we turn back to God. They didn't, so it did. And in 586 BC, the next great empire, Babylon, that had conquered Persia, conquered the southern kingdom of Judah and took those people into exile, but this time kept them in identifiable communities within Babylon. Jeremiah had prophesied that they'd be there for 70 years, but that God in his faithfulness would then bring them back home. And Ezra and Nehemiah come into the part of the story where those promises are being fulfilled and where God's people are allowed at last to come back home. So for decades, the people of God have been thousands of miles from their homeland. Yes, absolutely. A thousand miles or so, not quite as the crow flies, but as the journey would take them. They've been in exile. Now, you know, that probably has different things. Certainly there's the shock of all that at the beginning, a new people, new ways, new culture. But over that time, actually, Jeremiah had encouraged them to settle down and to accept that this was part of what God had for them. So by the time we get to the opening chapters of Ezra, where we find Ezra actually looking back in history. He doesn't appear in the story till chapter seven, and the first six chapters are him looking back to what happened. When God's people were given permission to go back home, why? Because Babylon now itself had been conquered by yet another empire, Persia, who had a king called Cyrus, who had a very different policy of allowing conquered peoples to go back to their homeland. And so in 539 BC, Persia had conquered Babylon and the following year, Cyrus made a decree saying that conquered peoples could go back home. And it's that note that Ezra chapter one begins on. But because they had been there so long, actually they settled down. They'd, they'd rather got into life in Babylon. They'd done what Jeremiah had said, they'd build houses and planted fields. And so when the cry came up to 
who's ready to go back to the promised land rather than there being a resounding, yeah, let's go. Actually, it was quite a struggle to get people back. And only about 40,000 or so of them went back in that first wave of returnees in 538 BC. One of the first things they do, in, we find in chapter 3, is to rebuild the altar. And that's followed later in chapter 3 by them then rebuilding the temple. Nothing like the grand temple that was built by Solomon. But at least they're starting to get things back. Didn't, didn't go straightforwardly, by the way, because we find in chapters 4 and 5 and 6 that, that there's opposition oh. from local people. Because when they'd been exiled, a few of the poorest had been left in the land, but Babylon had also imported people from other parts of its conquered empire. They believed in a sort of mix them all up so there, there can't be any groups to work against us. And so that mixed population there uh, had got very settled and, you know, suddenly felt it was their land. And what are these Jews doing coming back, wanting to build their temple in our land as they now saw it and so actually tried to oppose them they wrote to the king trying to stop it happening but god oversees it all and eventually the king makes a decree that they are indeed allowed to rebuild their temple and so by the end of chapter six we've got that temple rebuilt again that sense of opposition that can be very real even today you're determined to achieve something that you believe in, but you've got all sorts of voices against you. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I think wherever we live in the world, Christians can face that, can't they? It can be structural opposition from the powers that be at times. Perhaps some of the laws that are enforced locally or nationally are not things that we would want to comply with or don't feel are very godly. It can be personal, people who have things against you, perhaps in the office or at work, because you are a Christian. And I think one of the things that stand out as readers work through these chapters is be looking for what they do, look for how they really set their hearts on God, they, they stay single-minded, and in fact, both through Ezra and Nehemiah, we'll find that both of them are books that contain opposition. But there's some great little keys in this book about keeping your eyes on God, keeping in your heart what God has said, doing what's right, keeping prayerful, trusting God, and believing that ultimately God will bring good out of it. It's easy to be discouraged in situations like this, but it sounds like they were encouraged and they were successful. This first wave, were they able to, to literally rebuild the temple? Yes, they did. And By the way, they did get discouraged. And it's at this period that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah fit into the story, although they aren't mentioned here, but we know from reading their books that that's where they fit in. And actually, they got really discouraged. And that's why God sent Haggai and Zechariah to sort of prophesy to them and encourage them and say, come on, guys, our God is faithful. And, you know, when we are going through tough times and hard times, the power of encouragement is so important to have brothers and sisters alongside us who say, come on, we can do it. I'll be there with you. We'll pray. Remember what God has said, because all of us have a way of forgetting what God has said at times when the pressure is on. 
And so the prophets like Haggai and Zechariah were really good at encouraging them to remember what God had said and both encouraging and provoking them to take hold of that. And so, yes, that temple got completed a much reduced scale compared to how it had been. But at last they're back in the land and their temple is rebuilt. You said that Ezra sort of appears on the scene later in the book. What are the circumstances? Well, yes, he doesn't appear in his own book until halfway through. In chapter 7, which begins with a sort of many years later or after these things. Now, that's about 60 years later after the events that we just recorded of them, that first wave going back. So we're now at around 458 BC. And Ezra, who had been a priest, came from a priestly family, but obviously while they were in exile, couldn't be a priest because there was no temple. So had done what many priests had done and had almost retrained as a scribe. A scribe was someone who simply didn't copy the law, but who learnt it and taught it and applied it. And when you say the law, by that we mean the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. So he's an expert in what we might call God's word. He's a preacher, he's a teacher, he's a priest by background. In 458 BC, about 60 years later, he comes back to Judah now with a second group of exiles, actually having been sent back by the king of Persia to teach God's people God's ways. That's interesting, isn't it? Here's this pagan king sending them back to teach God's law. But of course, in those days, there was an awful lot of superstition and feeling that gods were often regional and that it would be good for these people to have the favor of their God, and that would make for peace in his empire. And you said that the Jews who'd come back to Jerusalem and Judah were living alongside people who had been living there for some time. Yes, and what that had led to was mixed marriages, and even some of those who came back with him married some of those who'd been in the land who therefore weren't Jews. Isn't that against the law? Well, exactly, and therefore that's one of the first things we find in this book that Ezra will tackle. You know, it is interesting, right through the Bible, both in Old Testament and New Testament, God says to us again and again, look, if you're my people, don't marry outside of my people. Don't marry someone who's not committed to me. Why? Because it will always end up taking you away. And there's still wise words for us there today. You know, if someone doesn't have a partner and really, really wants one, and perhaps there's not a Christian boy or Christian girl around in your church, it is easy perhaps to think, well, maybe I there's that guy or that girl in the office and they really like me and I really like them. But, you know, if they don't share the most important thing in your life with you, your faith in God, your faith in Jesus, it will inevitably lead to strains and struggles and will inevitably lead to a dilution of faith. So Ezra really tackles this issue when he comes back and he says this really shouldn't be it and actually makes some of those men and women separate who had, in his view and in the view of God's word, falsely, wrongly married. I was going to say, how did the people respond to this direct teaching from Ezra? 
Well, actually, I think there's, you know, there's a real move of God because they recognize what they've done wrong. You know, very often people don't know what they've done is wrong until it's been explained to them. And one of the great things you'll see about Ezra, as you read in this book, is that he was a man who was dedicated to teaching God's word. In fact, there's a lovely phrase, if I can just go back to chapter 7, verse 9, says that Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord and to teaching its degrees. To study, to observe, that means to do. He studied, he lived it out, and he taught it. And the reason I think his teaching had such impact was because they could see he was living it out as well. He wasn't just one of these preachers who studies and preaches, but you think, well, I wish you'd live a bit more of that in your own life. He practised what he preached. Absolutely. And I think, therefore, when he preached what, let's face it, was a very challenging word, they were able to see the integrity that lay behind it. And so by chapter 10, we find the people confessing their sin and putting these situations right. Why? Well, because they remembered, why did we end up in exile? Because we disobeyed God. And if we don't want to end up in exile again, then we better make sure that we start obeying God really in the most fundamental things of life. And that surely starts in our own home and marriage and family. Now, you mentioned earlier that back in Persia, where these exiles had come from, there were still some people remaining because they'd chosen not to come back home. Yes, that's right. And some never did come back home. And, and we learn about some of the things that happened there in another episode when we look at the life of Esther, who was one of those people who stayed there. But there were others who were still there. And one of the people who is still there is the second character we're looking at, who is Nehemiah. Nehemiah came from a good family in Judah, but had been born while he was there in Persia. So really, he had never seen the homeland. I suppose it's a bit like today when uh, Irish Americans, you know, think about their Irish heritage, but they've never been there. And, you know, it's way, way back when their grandparents were there. So Nehemiah had never been to Jerusalem? No. Nope. He'd never been there at all, which makes how his story begins, which is a really exciting story, all the more gripping and exciting because the story opens in Nehemiah chapter 1 with him receiving a message from Judah that although the people have gone back, that the walls of Jerusalem are still broken down and its gates have been burnt. In other words, it's still in a really poor condition. And this gets Nehemiah's heart. He's cut to the heart. And he actually goes before God and it says he mourns and, and prays. So he's probably praying and fasting for some days, calling out to heaven for this place that's deep in his heart. But actually, he's never seen with his own eyes and something stirs within him and he says, oh, God, God, I long to be able to do something about this. I'm a servant of the king. He was the cup bearer to the king. Now, that was more than just the guy who poured the wine for him. You know, the cup bearer was the guy who also tasted the wine. 
Now, you might think, well, that sounds a good job, doesn't it? Well, actually, it was probably the most dangerous job on earth in those days because one of the most common ways of assassinating rulers in those days was through poisoning their food. Hmm. So you were really testing the wine to see if it was poisoned or not. And as such, cupbearers became much more than just the guy who served the wine. They often became some of the most trusted servants and advisors of the king. And as such, he knows that he's in a position to perhaps get through to the king and say, King, is, is there anything we could do? My home city is still in ruins. And so chapter one ends with him calling out to God, Oh God, you know, today, please hear and answer my prayer. But his first instinct isn't then just to go and do something, just to go to the pagan king and try and get something sorted. It's really interesting, isn't it? Activists uh, like me, you know, want to a quick prayer and go uh, and go and see what I can do about this. But between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, where something happens, four months pass. So for four months... This guy is praying and crying out to God and asking God to bring up the right opportunity. I find that really challenging. You know, the challenge there to really bring things to God in prayer when you need to see a significant breakthrough. And it's out of his praying that something happens, though it almost catches him by surprise, because in chapter two, we find that he goes into the presence of the king and uh, he's obviously got things on his mind. Maybe he's thinking about back home and his face looks sad. And the king says to him, Nehemiah, why have you got a sad look on your face? Now, that was seen as a most terrible offence. You know, if you had a sad look on your face, it was saying that you were not happy with the king. Yeah. There's some thought that it might have even been punishable by death, but it was certainly a very serious offence. And Nehemiah suddenly says, oh, my goodness. And quickly he fires an arrow prayer up to God. You see, arrow prayers are great, but we've got to have that background of the more consistent prayer preparing for it. An arrow prayer, like a quick prayer. A quick prayer, yeah. Okay, oh, help. <laughs> and he suddenly comes out with it. He says, I prayed to the God of heaven. There's his quick prayer, his arrow prayer, and answered the king, if it pleases the king and if I found favour in your eyes, please, would you send me back to my homeland in Jerusalem because its gates are burned and my ancestors there are lying in that city in such a city of shame. It's interesting. He goes in with a way that could appeal to the king this sense of shame. I feel shame because my ancestors are in a city that's in ruins. And the king could have easily have said no. He could, but it's also something that he easily identifies with. And I think the fact that, you know, Nehemiah had earned his right to speak at this point. Clearly, he had been a very faithful servant. And I think because of that, he gets quite a, I think what to him would have been a surprising answer. The king says, oh, well, how long would you be away? <laughs> it's one of those moments when, oh, wasn't expecting that. So he finds himself being authorised by the king 
given troops to go with him, given resources, given letters of authority to get everything he gets. And in a moment, the whole situation is transformed. But it took those four months of praying first and then that quick arrow prayer and then a readiness to grasp the opportunity. Some really good principles there for us in our life today. You know, when we want to see a breakthrough, we need to pray first, pray. Then a moment comes, pray quick, be wise in how you present your requests, but then go for it and who knows what God might do. So he's released to go and heads to Jerusalem. He's never been there before. What does he discover when he gets there? Well, he discovers that the whole thing's a mess. And because he's never been there before, one of the first things he does is that he needs to inspect what's there. And so he does it by night. He goes out at night on a secret reconnoiter by night to go and see what condition the city walls and gates are in. And he works his way around anti-clockwise and gets so far and eventually has to stop and turn back because he, he can't get any further. There is such destruction. And out of that, he then gathers some of the leaders of the Jews the next morning and says, come on, guys, you, you see what condition Jerusalem is in. You know, its walls have been destroyed. Its gates burnt by fire. Come, let us. I like that. Let us, not let you. Let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. Because the temple had been rebuilt, but the walls were still in ruins, and that was essential, presumably, for the protection of the city. Well, absolutely, and as long as there were no walls around the city, anybody could attack you at any time. So Ezra's role had been to get the word of God central. Nehemiah's role now is to get that wall built so the city can be secure. And what's his strategy? He has a great strategy. Chapter three, he gets everybody involved in the project, but has them build the bit of the wall right by their own house. Clever. Very, very clever indeed. Because, of course, you're going to make sure that bit of the wall is really strong and well built because you want your house to be protected. So a really clever strategy. He also believed in teamwork. One of the phrases you'll see come out in chapter three again and again is next to him, so-and-so built, next to him, so-and-so built, next to him, so-and-so built. And so it goes on. And there's this, this sense of we really are in this together. Politicians use that phrase sometimes as a, as a bit of a trite catchphrase. But this was the case. here. We really are in this together. And there's this sense of teamwork, working together. Yes, there is that self-interest. They're building the bit of the wall opposite their own house, but they're next to one another. They're doing this together. And there is this tremendous sense of excitement. And despite opposition that comes, because not everybody's happy, some of those local people in the land, some of the local rulers who uh, felt they were the bee's knees, really oppose it. But again and again, Nehemiah refuses to be distracted by the opposition. And in fact, they get the city walls and gates rebuilt, we discover by the end of chapter six, in just, can you believe it, 52 days. Wow. 
we could certainly do with him with some of our infrastructure projects in our country, couldn't we? Indeed, just over a month. Amazing, absolutely. Now, why was he so determined? What, what was the secret of his success? God had got his heart. And in a sense, you, you think, well, well, why? You know, he lived a very comfortable life in Persia. As a senior royal servant, he would have lived in the palace, very fine clothes, very best of things. So frankly, life was pretty cushy for him and it would have been very easy to say, well, you know, God bless you. You know, I'll send you the occasional gift. But somehow God got his heart about a place he'd never even been to. Now, that can happen. I mean, many missionaries will tell you that God got their heart about places long before they even knew about it. Many instigators of Christian work around the world will tell you that God got their heart about an issue. One of my young friends, God got his heart about the modern sexual slave trade. He got his heart before he could do anything about it and suddenly he's ended up building an incredible Christian organisation that influences government and all sorts of things because God got his heart and that's the secret, I think, with Nehemiah. God broke in, God got his heart, and once God's got your heart, you know, you then just give yourself to it. You, you do all the praying you need to, you do all the practical stuff, because Nehemiah was debt practical. He knew he needed letters of authorization from the king. He knew he needed supplies. He knew he needed to reconnoiter. He knew he needed people to work in teams. So he's both spiritual and practical, but it's when God has got your heart that you can have that impetus to do what he said and to keep going even when people oppose you. I get the impression that in this story of Ezra and Nehemiah, it wasn't just a matter of rebuilding the walls, but a matter of rebuilding people's lives. Yes, absolutely. And the story of Ezra and Nehemiah come together in Nehemiah chapter 8, although Ezra had gone back earlier than Nehemiah for a different purpose. Clearly, they worked as a team because by chapter 8 of Nehemiah, we find Ezra being reintroduced. And Nehemiah, who'd been appointed to be the governor, so he's the man with the political power here, gets Ezra to come and in a great festival in chapter 8 to read God's law, God's word to all the people. And they have this great meeting where they all gather together. Uh, and Ezra has a, a big high platform, a sort of stage, a pulpit. It was an outdoor event. It was an outdoor event. And he's there on his pulpit or on his platform reading the word of God to people. Because why Ezra and Nehemiah wanted God's word and life lived according to God's word to be at the center of everything that happened and to make sure they understood it. Because remember, this word is written in Hebrew. These people have been away from the promised land. Many of them actually now had lost the ability to speak Hebrew. They were now speaking Aramaic, which was almost like a, a simplified version of it, but quite an international language of the day. So Ezra is keen, not just that he preaches the word and reads the word to people, but that they understand it. And so he assigns certain Levites, the 
assistance to the priests to go among the people in their groups while he is speaking. So while he's reading from the book of the law, they go among the people and it text says making it clear and giving the meaning so they could understand. Not just translating. Well, it might have been translating, certainly those bits that they didn't understand, but translating and saying, now, do you understand what that means? So this is almost like, let's put it in our context, the pastor's up front doing a few minutes preach, and then they're in groups around the church. You know, there are small group leaders saying, okay, so did you get what the pastor was just saying there? You understand what that means for us? Wow, that would be a radical way of doing sermons in our churches today. But it comes out of Ezra's passion that people shouldn't just be word knowers, but word livers. And it was the fact that they hadn't lived out this word that had led to their exile anyway. He was determined that wouldn't happen again. So as a team, Nehemiah makes it possible for Ezra to bring this word of God to God's people again. And God's people then respond in chapter 9 by confessing their sins and agreeing together to live according to God's word in chapter 10. As a preacher man yourself, you must think of many occasions when you've spoken, but you're not sure whether people have understood. And in, as you say, our context today, what can we learn from these books about the importance of putting into practice what we hear? I'm a great believer in steadily reading God's word each day, just working through it ourselves. I'm a great believer in having sermons that are relevant in our churches today. But it is so important that we understand. Thankfully, there are so many ways that we can do that these days. There are so many books and booklets. UCB itself makes some available to help people read through the scriptures. There are many things online. They'll make sure you're going to a good resource online to look for that. But, you know, even little things like using small groups in your church life, to look back at what was taught on Sunday. And that's what we've done in our own church at different seasons. So here are a couple of people who are sensitive to God, passionately committed to God's word being central, and who really just gave their lives to enabling that to happen, not just in them, but through them. And because of that, it ended up influencing a whole people of God as they were able to come back to Judah and begin the next phase of the plan that God had for them. Mike Beaumont has been talking to David Taverner. Listen to more episodes anytime. Bible books in 30 minutes. Through the Bible, book by book, from Genesis to Revelation. This is a United Christian Broadcasters production. For more about UCB, Check out the website at ucb.co.uk.